that was the impetus for my growing on social media, where I where I posted something like, "Oh, I'm interested in doing some sort of mentorship program for free on on YouTube or whatever it was." Um, if you're interested, like, let me know in the comments,、um, and then I'll try and get back to you. I was expecting. I posted this at like 10 p.m. Sydney time, thinking that, or、oh, maybe you know, 10 people would register or whatever, or write their email down or something to say they're commented,、uh, they're interested. I woke up the next morning and there were over 1,500 comments saying that people were interested. I'm like, oh, this seems like there's an opportunity to do something to help a lot of people here. And from within a week, I kind of scrambled to put together like a live stream the following weekend. Sent out all these emails and started building out like a an email list from from that day on.、Um, and I sent out a survey to see what people wanted to to learn about or what they wanted me to talk about. And I sent the survey out to like it must have been fifteen hundred people and over a thousand people responded, which is a crazy response rate considering that I'm just some random dude who'd just been posting on LinkedIn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, my conversation is with Danny Ma. Danny is a data scientist, consultant, and educator, and over the years has built a strong personal brand over LinkedIn and Twitter. Now he runs his Data with Danny education platform, where he teaches fundamental data skills to thousands of students all around the world. He is a LinkedIn top voice and a technical author. And instructor at O'Reilly Media and LinkedIn Learning. In this episode, expect to learn why data is becoming the new oil, the fundamentals of data science, the differences and similarities between data science and AI, how Danny used his expertise in building a strong personal brand, the value of being authentic on social media, the power of dumb consistency when it comes to getting what you want, and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears, and helps us engage in insightful conversations, so you can keep learning and being better every day. So, with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Danny Ma. Look, I think it's a This is going to be a good conversation. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to learn more about data science. They want to learn more about the field, about the industry, about the trends where it's going. And I feel like there's a lot of people who still don't understand what data science is at its core. Do you want to just explain what data science is at the fundamental level, sort of the the science of data, and maybe explain it a bit more for the uninitiated? For those who are sort of know about what data science is, they've heard about it. They've probably heard their coworkers or heard it at school, but they don't necessarily understand what it's all about. So maybe give a a, a bit of an explanation onto what、uh, data science is and and how do you use it in sort of the real world? That's a great question.、Uh, really good one to follow to start up with. I think、um, I've. So I've been doing data science for a little while now, for over ten years, and this is a question which has、um, always come from usually like senior leaders when they kind of come in and they say, "Okay, we've heard of the term data science. What does it What does it really mean?"、Um, for me, when I think of data science, it's literally about using the data to solve problems at a level of scale that you can leverage across the entire organization.、Um, 
in addition, I think a lot of the times data science, people think of it as using the, the AI or the machine learning to predict what's going to happen or to um, apply some LLMs or something to get some, get some information out of unstructured data. I believe that data science en- encompasses the whole range of that. Um, however, it's for me, it's very, it's very important to focus on the data itself and not to rely on all these fancy algorithms and anything like that. So data science kind of stems from having good quality data. So in a nutshell, I would say data science is getting the data quality as good as it can so you can solve as many problems as you can um, at, at a rapid scale and speed. So I think there's going to be a lot of people asking about, well, okay, so I have data in front of me. It could be stored in different types of mediums, different formats. There could be insights that I want to get out of this data. Can you maybe walk through or give me a walkthrough of maybe just a a project maybe that you've worked on in the past or something that you can explain at a very high level and, and sort of walk us through how you would go about getting uh, and sort of starting from soup to nuts and saying and explaining a little bit about the processes you would use and you would think about in getting the data and, and getting insights into those data. Uh, because I think there's a lot of folks out there who just find there's discontinuities. They just don't understand, like they have the data, but how do they take that data and then explain and then present visualizations on or be able to get really insightful uh, understandings about the data. Maybe you can walk through maybe a basic project or something that you've done in the past that really showcases how to do this from like in a in a very procedural way. Is, is there anything you can explain to that? Yeah, there's one one of my favorite projects that I've worked on was actually for um, a friend's uh, stock trading firm. So they were doing equities and all sorts of stuff in um, in Sydney. And one day he called me up and he asked me, Danny, can you help me build something that can give me more insights to, to help with my trades? Um, so we did that and we kind of went after like the, the way I like to approach these sorts of broad scope machine learning projects is to think about where you're getting your data from. So originally these guys had, um, some subscription to a financial market provider which would give us new data coming in daily, which would give you all of the tickers, various facts about um, some fundamentals and also some technical stats, just as like the price, the volume, um, and different things like that um, on a daily basis. So we always think of data science problems as, okay, you want um, good data in. So the, the, the converse of this is um, garbage in, garbage out. So we want to have the reverse of that, where we have good quality in and good quality out, hopefully. Um, in this case, when I was when we were working on this particular problem in the financial market space, we would have to ingest this data via some sort of API request coming from the provider itself um, and then bring it into our environment where we wanted to do the data cleansing. Um, if we're going to do any sort of transformations to help the machine learning algorithm actually learn something, Um, that's where we would do it as well. So we were doing things where I think we were trying to predict whether a stock goes up in price over the next set period. 
Um, and then we also wanted to look at if a stock was going to go down in price over a set period as well. So we can try and build some uh, machine learning models, which we could then use some explainable um, machine learning. Uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Machine learning techniques um, to then understand what drives a certain prediction one way or the other. Um, those were the things that were really helpful um, for this particular problem where we wanted to not just let the trader know, okay, make this trade. We wanted to tell them exactly why, because we we weren't really confident that the algorithm would actually perform well in a live environment. So there was always this um, human in the loop sort of approach where we would do something, surface out an insight, and if it was good and it checks out with some further due diligence that someone was doing on the trading floor, then they can go and execute the trade based off a blend of machine learning insights as well as their own um, experience in, um, and I'm, I'm lost for words again today, um, and their intuition as well. So I think from that example, the, the stock marketing, you, you were trying to predict the future about whether the price would go up or go down. But at the same time, the the data side, the on the data science side, it, it it can flow between time. So you could look at look at it historically and say, okay, what has happened, what has transpired, and you can get insights from that and then use that that data to effectively predict um what is going to happen next. How how did that project at least at some point, how did it evolve? And and what were some of the, the insights that you gained from working on a project like that? Mm. This this project was done pre-COVID, so before things kind of went crazy with all the markets data. So up until then, we were working on it from about mid-2017 through to about 2018, 2019. Um, the biggest challenge was actually trying to get the insights from historical data because uh, we all know that the markets are quite volatile. There's, there is an overall pattern, but day-to-day, -day, technically, it's very, very hard to predict the market. Um, and this is why it kind of intrigued me in the first place, because it's sort of like we think of it as data scientists. It's almost the holy grail of all machine learning problems. If you can predict the market, then you, you should follow it and kind of make a lot of money mm -hmm. out of it. Um, the, the biggest problems we faced were trying to pick out, okay, we have all this historical data. How much of it is relevant to the current context and how much of the past data is irrelevant? So there could be, let's say, I don't know, there's, um, I might go into some financial lingo here, but there's like bull and bear markets where they're, they're structurally very different to each other. And this, trying to tackle those sorts of problems helped me understand machine learning um, from a perspective where I found when I was working in other industries, such as retail or um, any other areas, there's generally some sort of seasonality, like there might maybe weekdays versus weekends, um, like different seasons itself, like summer versus winter and all those things that it might affect some sort of um, machine learning prediction. Um, but in the markets, it's like there's all other factors are coming in that you don't really see in the data. And that's the biggest thing that we found was um, there were all these news announcements and earnings reports and all sorts of things that weren't really getting baked into the data that we saw from the provider. So that also provided some challenges to think about from like an overall machine learning practitioner point of view. Um, I, I found that really interesting and, and it sort of paved the way for me to 
go on and work on different machine learning projects, which aren't always about stock steady prediction of what's going to happen in the next whatever time period, but more from like a general understanding of how to apply these tools to solve a more general problem. I found that that was probably the the most beneficial thing that I got got out of working on that um, stock market problem. And that's the thing. I think when you learn and when you get involved in these types of projects, you realize that fundamentally there is a foundation and you can deploy that foundation as a blueprint across other different types of data science problems. And from that alone, you can develop a higher level algorithms and higher level um, structures around that to, to work on different things. And for the most part, I would say that maybe data science, because some people, I think they, they can get confused between data science and AI and saying, well, data science is not AI and AI is not data science. Data science in and of itself is looking at basically what you alluded to in that, that first definition you gave us about really getting insights into data historically and but potentially predict what future outcomes could look like as well. But it's not necessarily AI per se. Maybe do you want to explain a little bit about just the the this maybe the fine distinction between what the differences are between let's say your general AI ML that people are well acquainted of detecting things and and being able to uh, predict uh, not predict but like say identify images or learn how to um, you know speech recognition versus just what data science is in and of itself what are the differences there hmm I would think the the first place I would start off with is around the AI component so mm-hmm. a lot of times as you alluded to the like people think of it as auto tagging images or providing some um, facial filter that we're using on Instagram or TikTok or something like that. Um, Those are definitely AI use cases. Um, They're driven by machine learning algorithms, which have learned from a ton of data. And in this case, it's going to be either unstructured image data, unstructured text or video data. Um, But the the concept of those data structures would be that they're all unstructured. So they're coming from things which don't traditionally look like rows and columns. Um, and machine learning algorithms are deployed on those sorts of data sets to actually return back something which is meaningful in the form of some output coming from the model itself. So that's one area of AI. Um, we see a lot more coming out of the unstructured text data these days. Um, we see like ChatGPT and all the other variants from different providers. Um, this is one area which I think we can think of that as, we'll park that one as AI, as we know it now. Um, there's a whole other area of AI, which is kind of blended in with machine learning. Um, these ones would be around trying to make predictions, trying to service um, insights that can drive some sort of action. There are kind of, I, I find that there are two different types of these sorts of machine learning problems. There might be more as well, to be honest. Um, the main one would be trying to make those predictions like I was talking about in the first project about the stock market prediction, where it's nice and tight, you use historic data to try and predict the future. Um, there are other AI and machine learning projects where you might be using the historic data to try and understand what happened. And you might not necessarily need to make a prediction, but you want to provide some level of insight on 
um, as to why things are happening. So this is more like a causal analysis of different things happen. Therefore, this um, has also occurred at a certain higher probability. So something like that, we tend to think of it as almost like descriptive analytics or causal analytics or something like that, where we're trying to figure out what happened. Um, of course, there's there's an implicit um, understanding that you'd use that to try and shape what actions you're going to take in the future. Um, but it's not quite as explicit as some of the other machine learning algorithms and the outputs where it's telling you, okay, Barry, this, um, this example is a, a positive example. You should action this one right now. Um, there's, there's also, now that I think about it, there might be another one where it kind of like blends the, the concept of making a prediction and then kind of, um, running experiments on top of those predictions to optimize an overall system. So we mm -hmm. think of this as almost like a, um, the, the technical term for it would be a contextual multi-armed bandit or a single armed bandit, or there's all sorts of things that are related to gambling machines. So on a gambling machine, the, the concept would be you have all these different, um, well, the gambling example is you have all these uh, machines that you could pull on. Each has a lever. And over time, if you keep playing the gambling game over and over again, you can figure out the distribution of the return for each of the levers. So in the same way, when we run experiments in, let's say, the digital world, you could serve one of five different ads, let's say, for an example. Um, to Barry, who the, the machine learning algorithm has said, Barry is likely to convert, let's show him an ad. And that second level of learning is where we think of AI is in that space where you learn from the data, but you also structure the experiments in a way that you can actually learn from the data at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit different to the traditional machine learning algorithms where you just have the historic data and you come up with the prediction. It's like, you have that component and then you have a whole experimentation layer on top of it where you're trying to pull on all of these different levers to try and figure out which creative or which campaign actually drives people like Barry to convert in the future. So it's, I think those are like the three main ways from structured data. Like we're thinking of rows and columns. Um, but of course there's many, many more that we could, we could probably elaborate on as well. And then that's the interesting part. The fact that, now with the with what's happening across the ai space being able to predict or generate specific outcomes and then using those outcomes in a feedback loop that allows you to optimize for that given situation and then be able to think in and of itself about what these uh, systems can do and it's really predicting the future but using generated uh, outputs of what the system might think it look it could look like as well and that's that's becoming much more valuable and um, obviously there's still a lot of research in that field but it's really a testament to see how far the data science field has gone and now we're now starting to see the fusion or overlap of AI and, and data science coming into itself and and sort of saying okay well how can we then merge these two fields to produce something that's going to be super valuable um, for companies, for people, for society in general. What are your thoughts about sort of where, you know, data science is heading? Obviously, it, it is going to cross, it's already crossed paths uh, for such a long time with AI, but now it's going to get much more 
inextricably linked uh, together into the future. You know, what are your thoughts and your, are you excited? Are you concerned? Uh, how do you feel about uh, the crossover between AI and data science going forward? I think in the past, a lot of the massive companies that we see nowadays, mm. um, let's say, let's take Google, for example, it kind of stemmed from an application of data science, if we could call it that, back in the day, um, where they essentially crawled the whole internet to try and create some structure from it and then provide search results based off the linkages and what's going on within their specific algorithm. Um, I think that these algorithms are going to be the future of um, massive businesses such as Google, such as Facebook, that do the recommendations, like the Instagram feed recommendations. Um, all of these, are, we think of it as they're, they're not really products per se, but they're the, they're the features of the overall product that we're using as end users. So let's say that the TikTok feed, for example, is TikTok itself because you want to be served relevant information. Um, and that is all driven by data, by recommendation systems, very similar to Netflix. So Netflix, yes, it, it lets you watch videos, but underlying it, there's a recommendation service, which is figuring out your preferences um, along with other people's preferences and potentially recommending you something that other people might have enjoyed as well. Um, in the same way, I think that that's going to be more the, the future of, I think at least for e-commerce and buying things, we should see these recommendation systems or the technology that underlie it. Um, for, for big companies such as Amazon, for example, they've got their own custom implemented recommendation system that is doing some stuff in there. I think that over time that that sort of technology and that sort of data science and machine learning product would be available for more companies to leverage across their entire inventory. Um, whether they have like a, an e-commerce front end or not, I think, um, it can be used in many other ways as well. Like if it's like B2B, that could work as well. B2C has clear opportunities to apply these sorts of technologies. Um, but in future, I, I feel that there's this whole wave of, um, like I, I heard that the guys at OpenAI has just opened up like a, a GPT or some sort of AI. Um, market front, very similar to what the Apple store has done for, I think it's like whatever the app store is. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what are the new sorts of applications that people would tend to create. I've seen a few, which are really cool. Like I, I love cooking in my spare time. So I was thinking to myself, oh, um, chef GPT would be a really cool name for some, something that gives you like, uh, recipe recommendations or, something that can I don't know, take an image of your food and tell you how good or bad it is or something like that. Um, I'm sure that things like that, or I, I did a Google search and that definitely exists. There's like at least four of them. And some of them are even paid services where you have to subscribe like on a monthly basis to get access to the to these recipes that the AI has created for them. So I feel that little little niche pockets of industries, which traditionally may not have taken up data like whether it's machine learning or even looking at any insights basic analysis and stuff like in some traditional industries they just don't do it right like your traditional mom and pop fish and chip shop on on the corner of the street 
Um, they're most likely not going to be leveraging any sort of insights to run their business. It's all off gut feel. Um, like, and maybe they do a little bit of market research in terms of reading and trying to get the feel for their suburb. But beyond that, there's no real product that really targets them to help them apply these sorts of new technology to help them run their business better. Um, so I think that's the thing that excites me about the future is that, um, we could potentially, well, all small business owners could get, get access to the same level of insights that large corporations do once the level of scale kind of reaches that, that critical point where everything can become available to everyone to some extent. I feel like that it speaks to that whole foundation thing that we spoke about earlier is the, the notion of modularization and the idea that you can create little uh, pockets of opportunities based on a fundamental piece of technology and what OpenAI has done with GPT, uh, maybe perhaps Hugging Face are doing something similar. They're providing a service at the API level, for example, and then being able to infuse that with certain applications. And you mentioned Chef, GPT, there might be one for travel, booking flights, booking accommodation, and it applies to so many industries that it's now opened up a bit of a Pandora's box in a good way that is going to help a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise use AI thinking about at least at the very basic level, understand and maybe be a bit curious about what if we used AI in this industry, what could it mean for our profit margins, our growth, you know, us as owners or people who are interested. So I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity and I think it's going to be interesting to see what sort of use cases come out of that and then then sort of ties that in with data science, which will all happen in the background anyway, and they'll be able to uh, scrape data, provide data, specific data uh, from their own businesses into these types of applications. So I think that's super cool. Do you see any, I don't know, um, you know, obviously when I speak to people about AI, one of the topics obviously comes about the concerns and what do you, uh, you know, are you scared? Are you excited? Obviously, there's a level of excitement uh, that you and I have about this, but is there any sort of uh, concern or awareness about uh, where AI could potentially go? Hmm. That's a great question. I've I've watched a few videos of like, there's, there's always like some podcast where some famous guy from Google or other people like Mr. Elon Musk are saying things and kind of like almost, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say doom bringing some of the things, but there's definitely like some sort of doomsday plot that's happening in the background where everyone is very, they're all jumping in on the pile to say like AI is going to like take over the world and it's going to write its own code and it'll write us, write us out of existence. I think that that, as as plausible as it may seem when you play things out into the future, that may well happen, but I think it'll take many, many iterations before it can really get to that stage. Um, in the short term, there's like there are so many things which you could use machine learning for um, if being used by bad actors, it could probably do a lot of harm in terms of like you can you can imagine like, oh, if the the image, recognition algorithms are good and you hook it up to something that can shoot bullets it's probably not a good idea um but i'm sure someone somewhere in the world has probably gone ahead and done that anyway um 
I feel that the level of autonomy that the algorithms that are in these sorts of systems, which could do harm, um, those algorithms have probably been around for, for a very long time or for long enough for us to actually use it in a corporate sense. So it just makes sense that there are going to be these sorts of applications that are going to do harm. Um, and there's, there's almost no way to stop them as well in, from, from my opinion. So those things are going to happen, um, uh, whether or not this sort of AI mega race about, um, trying to build these products that can give you, um, that you can have chatbots and different things. I feel that there's a level of downside to some of it as well. Like you can imagine someone builds a chatbot that only um, says bad things or says tells the wrong things um, instead of telling you what um, what knowledge that it has actually learned or if it's actually going to be helpful. Um, but those things, I feel that they are kind of built in by the developers and it's not so much that the AI is figuring out for itself like, oh, I'm going to be a bad actor. I'm going to tell Barry all of the wrong things about this topic. So he goes down and gets led astray. Um, I feel that that's always still in the hands of the developers who are building the application in the first place. So in summary, I, I don't think yet that there's going to be like a existential crisis about AI um, coding us, coding humans out of existence. Um, there's always, there's something I remember reading something where like there's one person hired at I don't know some tech firm or something that they're there to like literally unplug the power cable of of the actual system that runs all the AI apparently, um, and they're paid like I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year just to stand there on standby to like pull the plug whenever the AI gets too powerful. Um, I think that's just nonsense at the moment. There's <laughs> I don't think that that's a thing, but. Um, I could be wrong. There might that maybe there's some secret government projects that are happening that we shouldn't talk about on this project, um, on this podcast. But you you never know. I I feel that the technology is just not quite there yet. But if we think of it in how quickly we've come to where we are now, from where we started, just like a few even from a decade ago, that pace of technological um, evolution is probably going to increase someone smart, super smart, figure out how to get the technology to a point where we could be reaching that critical mass. But I just don't see it in the foreseeable future, like within the short enough term. So if we're going to be making policies about this, I feel that they have to be long-term visioned just to say like, okay, what sort of things do we not want to happen? So trying to reduce the probability of ruin if we were in a gambling scenario anything that can kind of make that more apparent is probably going to do good. But there's just like so many things. There's like, I think it, we, we think of it as like the known unknowns that could happen. Like we have no idea what would happen in the next 50 years right? or even try to envision it. So it makes it very difficult to kind of do things about it in the current time. So I find that anyone who's trying to, govern the use of AI will run into these problems as they're making any sort of policy decisions. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, AI is a tool, just like everything else. Uh, technology is a double-edged sword. It can be used in, uh, in, in good ways and bad ways. And there'll be bad actors who are trying to exploit the technology to serve their own needs. And AI is just an impartial entity in across all of this. And it's really up to the humans themselves who are, developing and coercing this AI to serve their needs. So 
I don't see it any different from any other technology that we've dealt with in the past. Obviously, it's much more powerful and much more significant uh, versus others, but it's a it's a new era, it's a new age, and I think we're going to be uh, surprised by some of the results, but also a lot of the uh, a lot of our visions and projections will probably be uh, put to bed at some point, and we'll see what it goes. And I think there's a there was a great article that Mark Andreessen, head of A sixteen C, one of the VC firms, wrote, and I'll put in the show notes below. But he basically tells that there's nothing to be worried about. Uh, there was a level of naivety in there at, at the same time, but I've, obviously it's up to everyone to really, uh, you know sort of develop their own thoughts on the on the topic and I for one agree with you there's nothing to be worried about for now at least and I think it's a great opportunity to explore what this space is all about and it's going to be fun and exciting and and we'll be the ones who are going to be driving the fate uh, of this so it's it's really cool I wanted to maybe switch gears a little bit to some of the the tools that you used um you know you mentioned some of the the, the stock market stuff. Um, when you work with some of these projects, are there a suite of tools that you typically use? Um, we can also, and I want to lead back into this question towards the end when it talks, when we talk about advice for young people to get into this space, what should they use? How should they use it? There's definitely a consortium of, consortium of tools that you can start to use. They're always being developed. Uh, the incumbents like Google and and uh, some of these large corporations are creating tools to make it easier and as well as uh, many others. What's sort of the sort of your war chest of tools that you typically use in, in sort of when you're building and working on these data science projects? Typically, we will focus on um, most mostly using um, wherever wherever the data lives, we'll use technology, but that we can easily access it and potentially run things on a database. So this could be most likely going to be some form of SQL or SQL. Um, a lot of the data that I deal with with different clients at the moment, they're all stored in the data warehouse somewhere. Um, and the best way to extract that out into whatever other environment so you can continue doing work on it. Um, I think SQL is the main language of data at the moment in terms of doing those sorts of transformations. Um, so definitely SQL would be probably the number one thing on my, on my, um, in my war chest at the moment. And that's structured data when you were talking about SQL. Yes. SQL is for mostly for structured data. There's also a level of, um, you can still use it for unstructured data in terms of JSON objects and different things where there is like semi-structured in there. So I think that it's quite flexible. It can, it, it's very powerful when you do it on a lot of data. And it's very simply, if you're dealing with a terabyte worth of data, it's very hard to get that into a local machine to do that in Python or something like that. Mm. So the, the, the way to do it is to do it wherever the data lives to make it as cheap and fast as possible. Then when you wrangle the data out into a more manageable format, um, the generally I would recommend people to look into Python is probably a good bet at the moment. Um, you probably hear of all these things of people using Python for machine learning and building websites and all sorts of things. So I think of Python as like the Swiss army knife of the data professionals toolbox. Um, you can use it to do anything pretty much within, within reasonable realms. Um, but in particular, it has quite a, a mature set suite of tools for data analysis data visualization, 
um, making interactive data web apps, if you so choose, as well as also the machine learning and, and some of the AI applications as well. Um, that would be my next bet would be once you have the data, you've done it in the SQL, you'd bring it out into some sort of environment. Um, that one, you can, you can use it on cloud computing. You can do it on your local machines if the data is small enough. Um, but what we're seeing now is that there's bigger, much bigger reliance on cloud computing, um, especially when dealing with enterprise clients who have all their data in the cloud in the first place. So a lot of the times we'll be kind of like wrangling data in SQL, get it out into some environment where you can, it's still on the cloud, and then you can do some machine learning, do some visualization at scale. Um, and then finally, you'll have an option to potentially deploy those results somewhere. Maybe it's downstream into a production system. Maybe you're deploying a web app that's still living on the cloud, and you want to give it access to only people that you know should be accessing it. Um, or you might be that you could be building out an API so your customers can then hit that API and extract the insights that you've already generated. Um, there's a lot of different ways that the data science and the machine learning um, skill set can kind of permeate through all of these sorts of levels to get things done, and but to also make sure that the data is coming in at the right place. So the main tools that I'd focus on uh, at the moment would probably be SQL, my Python, somewhere in the mix. Um, and then the final part would just be general knowledge about cloud computing. And like, there's a lot of command line usage as well in my day to day. So I'd just be in like the black screen doing most of the things without a mouse. Um, so yeah, I would say that the most, um, important tools to know right now for how to, um, actually implement some data science solutions in the workplace would be mostly SQL. Um, Python for your all general purpose computing, whether you're building um, APIs or um, building a website or linking it to different parts of the entire infrastructure, Python is a pretty good bet. Um, but sooner or later, you'll be relying on proper services which are deployed within the cloud environment that you're using, whether it's in Google Cloud or in Amazon or Azure. I think there are specific services which are much easier to interact with um, using the command line. Um, and using some sort of config and then passing it through proper, like proper software engineering principles and other things like that. So there's, there's, there's a lot of power in being a strong programmer, I would, I would say, um, in the data space. So if you're kind of starting off and you're wondering if you should focus more on, of course, there's an aspect of being able to understand data really well and being able to analyze it, but being, being a good programmer in general is also going to give you a lot of bang for buck as well. Yeah, I, I definitely want to explore a little bit about the skill set of being a good data scientist or someone who is interested in pursuing data towards the end of, of the conversation. But let's pivot a little bit to a bit about your personal story and some of the stuff that you've done sort of behind the scenes and working with uh, social media, building a following, because I think, uh, and this will tie in with the whole uh, work that you're doing with data science. I think data science is still a very elusive topic to a lot of people, and they want to better understand what it's all about, especially as data is becoming effectively the new oil, and it's becoming so valuable that there's definitely a need and a demand for people with such skills. So do you want to explain a little bit about you know, how you got into it, you know, what's your background, 
Um, and then maybe we can talk about some of the stuff you've done um, sort of across social media to really promote the brand, uh, not just yourself, but also the, the notion of, of data science and really educating people about it. So I'd love to sort of get uh, an insight into how you got started with this whole field. Yeah, definitely. The, I started studying um, my undergraduate of a bachelor's of commerce, majoring in actuarial studies and um, economics. And in this period, this is where this is like know, 20, 2010 is when I started university. Um, that was around the time when I had no idea what I was doing, didn't ever do anything with data. And I was really lucky that my undergraduate also sent me out on placements. So these were like essentially internships within the insurance industry. So I kind of got my first taste of data within this space. Um, mostly it was like using Excel. There were lots of VBA macros and other things that we'll be using. Um, but I did get exposed to SQL for the very first time using a software called SAS, or I think it stands for Statistical Analysis Software. So this was part one of my first internships. I was writing SQL code, albeit very, very badly and not really knowing what I was doing. Um, and then eventually throughout my undergraduate, I also got exposed to doing programming in a, pro in a language called R, which is very famous for statistical work as well and data visualization. And it also had a lot of machine learning in there um, in the early days before Python kind of caught up. So from there, I kind of realized that I didn't quite want to work in insurance. There weren't too many technical challenges in there for me. Um, and I wanted to go into like a pure data sort of role. Um, I was really lucky that I got into a graduate role with Quantium. Uh, this is, a, would say, one of the largest data consultancies in Australia now. But when I joined, there were under 100, maybe even maybe 60 to 100 people there at the time. Um, and then I, I focused there mostly on data analytics. And I felt to myself, okay, I, I think there's something more to do with the data. And this is when I kind of um, encountered data science for the very first time. And I spent like six months waking up really early in the morning, like 5 a.m. in the morning before work to learn Python on the side um, because I really wanted to learn the right skills to move into this other domain that I was that was pretty passionate about. Like I remember one of the first problems that I tackled or tried to tackle was like some Kaggle problem. This is Kaggle is a website where you can, um, you can compete in machine learning competitions to try and get a better prediction than other people. Um, there was like a really famous airplane like optimization one where you're trying to get flights, trying to predict which flights will be delayed and other things like that, which was super cool. I found that the, the complexity of such a problem was very alluring to me. And I wanted to do more of that on my day to day job instead of just playing around, um, in my spare time and trying to learn that. So then I kind of pivoted and joined, um, CBA, the Commonwealth Bank as, uh, I was originally in the digital analytics team, and then I ex expressed my um, my my desires to do more machine learning and to actually apply the techniques that I'd been learning on the side. And that's when I kind of started. I actually then was partnered up with some of the best data scientists in Australia at the time. They were all there in the CBA. And I kind of had my own internship in that period where I got to learn from these amazing people who just were very free with their information and would just kind of answer your questions, no matter how silly they were. So in doing that, I realized that I had picked up a lot of anti-patterns and I learned like how not to do some of the things. Um, 
And all of this was kind of undone within one or two projects with some of these really good, great data science mentors of mine. Um, following that role in CBA, I then moved into my running my own consultancy. So this is where I'm just kind of working with different clients, um, taking on contracts and trying to help them solve problems wherever they need it. Um, that was around the time when I also was in a contract and I kind of felt that I was lacking some sort of purpose to like, I'm solving all these problems and it's great and I'm making reasonably good money. Um, but is there something that I can do to actually give back and share my knowledge just in the same way that my mentors had shared their knowledge with me? Could I do something at a reasonably okay scale? And then like also to help a lot of people, but to improve my brand reputation and also potentially to help me secure future business, um, in like in the future as well. So that kind of culminated in me just starting to post on LinkedIn randomly. This is like must've the first time I posted on LinkedIn would have been around 2018. Um, and I wanted to share more about like what I'd been learning about data science and the different computing things that I've been learning on the side and just to share knowledge in general. But at that time I was in this weird space where I wanted to share my knowledge, but I also wanted to show other people how much knowledge I had which is like, it was very ego driven. And although there were good reactions, like I think one of my first posts had like I don't know, 800 something likes. And I was like, oh, this is really good. I can, I can build a huge following and everything like that. I never really followed through on it. And I felt that that was because my mind, my mindset wasn't in the right place. Um, and then in like 2020, that was when we were all stuck at home and I felt, okay, Surely I can do something with my spare time that would be more beneficial than me playing um, Doom 3 on my computer or whatever it was I was doing in my spare time. Um, and I just started posting again, but this time I was sharing more with the intent of, um, okay, does this is this post going to help whoever's going to read it? Um, if it helps, I'll post it and not care how many reactions or how many people like it or whatever it is. Um, and from there, it kind of just blossomed quite organically. Um, I did one post, um, which kind of, that was the impetus for my growing on social media where I, where I posted something like, Oh, I'm interested in doing some sort of mentorship program for free on, on YouTube or whatever it was. Um, if you're interested, like, let me know in the comments. Um, and then I'll try and get back to you. I was expecting, I posted this at like 10 PM Sydney time thinking that, or maybe you know, 10 people would register or whatever, or write their email down or something to say they're, comment uh, they're interested. I woke up the next morning and there were over 1,500 comments saying that people were interested. I'm like, oh, this seems like there's an opportunity to do something to help a lot of people here. And from within a week, I kind of scrambled to put together like a live stream the following weekend, sent out all these emails and started building out like a, an email list from, from that day on. Um, and I sent out a survey to see what people wanted to, to learn about or what they wanted me to talk about. And I sent the survey out to, like, it must have been 1,500 people and over 1,000 people responded, which is a crazy response rate considering that I'm just some random dude who'd just been posting on LinkedIn. Um, and from there, I kind of started doing some live streaming weekly to try and share my knowledge. These would run for like up to two hours at a time. Um, and then from there, I had a friend who mentioned to me, she was also a big influencer in the, in the data space. Um, 
I don't think I was an influencer at all, even now, like I was just a tiny little fish in the pond there. Um, but she told me, oh, you should, now that you have a bigger, bigger following, maybe you should think about um, doing courses as, as some additional income. And I'd never really thought of it before um, as like a reasonable way to share my knowledge, but to also get compensated for it. So I figured, oh, why not give it a go and see what's out there in the market and I can try and figure out what I want to teach, perhaps. Um, and I kind of did this survey of what was out there and I realized that I wanted to teach everything, but I knew that I couldn't because I didn't have the energy, vitality all the time. Um, so I decided I landed on teaching SQL as my very first thing that I wanted to get out in the world as an actual product. Um, and in doing the research, I realized that people were charging a lot of money for courses, which were pretty average quality. And I wanted to flip that whole model on its head and kind of provide really great quality for as little as I could, so I could maintain the whole operation, um, but to also um, make sure that a lot more, a lot of people could actually access the course at a certain price point. So I was going for like the volume approach, um, but the volume approach with having good quality at the same time. So to now, like to the current time, I still don't see too many courses which are in that same space where they're just providing a lot of great quality content for either free or for a little paid amount. And this is where I'm thinking about pivoting in the future is to provide even more free content in term, instead of actually charging people anything for it. Um, but that has kind of led me from then just doing contracts one-off with my clients in my actual business, I've been working with multiple clients and getting in touch with um, startups as well to try and help them scale their business. Um, I've now also been working with like coaching clients from over the world, like all over the world who are interested in like learning some of the tools on like a more comfortable, like one-on-one -on -one sort of situation as well. Um, so that has been very eye-opening and it has kind of forced me to learn my tools much more than I would have done if I had just been working in the workplace. Um, but yeah, I've, I found that um, going through that experience and continuously, like the only thing that has driven this sort of growth is just, I would say, dumb consistency <laughs> on my part, where I would just like constantly show up and post at least once a day, um, trying to connect with my audience and trying to share whatever knowledge I have. And I think if, if my story has I know, shone some light on what's possible by any random person on LinkedIn who's just messaging and posting something. I hope it can inspire at least one other person to do the same so they can share their knowledge as well. Well, you've definitely showcased that you have come from super humble beginnings and now you have at least you know over 100,000 followers on LinkedIn just by doing that very simple task of posting and being consistent and also being authentic as well. I think that's uh, what a lot of people, and you mentioned you had a change in mindset from 2018 to 2020, and that sort of put you in a better space to be able to post things without any recourse about what the reactions would be, what things that you couldn't control at the end of the day. And those are the things that are irrelevant. And it sounded like you really put a lot of focus on helping people and, and making sure that they could learn something every day, whether it be, you know, something as simple versus something that they wouldn't know about. 
and that would have given them at least the uh, the trigger to sort of understand a bit more about that space uh, that they that they wouldn't otherwise be be able to get access to. So that's been really fun to sort of hear about that massive journey that you've had. And I wanted to double click on maybe the strategy, and I don't know if you have a strategy or not, but just thinking about how can someone else be able to do this, not in this, just not in the exact same way as you did, but let's say they're an expert in some specific field. It doesn't have to be data science, but they wanted to, they want to give back. They want to, uh, see what it's like to be able to have a following and, and really get people, uh, interested in their content. But maybe there's some of them out there who are a bit shy, who don't know exactly what the, implications will be by posting stuff online are they going to not get any reactions are they going to get hate uh, can you speak to that and maybe a few words of advice on how you can inspire those types of people to sort of get out there and and post start posting themselves absolutely um i think first of all this is not legal advice so <laughs> make sure you're following the, the laws wherever you are listening um the first thing would be to check that you're legally allowed to post on LinkedIn. I've read some contracts when, especially for full-time employees, um, they're actually limited in terms of um, what they can say on social media, especially on LinkedIn as a professional platform. So if you, like I suggest reading through any contracts just to make sure that it's all above board um, before you do start posting, otherwise you might get called up by HR or someone will have some words with you. Um, but let's say that that is all good and you're allowed to start posting and like you might have to say something like all these thoughts are my own and they're not by the employer, um, which is fine. Then I think the next step would be to, a, a lot of the time people want to post about their everyday life sometimes. Like I had this vision or I'd say dream of like, oh, I'd love to be a an influencer who just posts about what they're doing every day and people would just instantly love them and whatever, but it's not really like that. It's not all um, roses and daisies in the real world. So the first thing to do is probably to find your focus area that you can share a lot of your own information and experiences and kind of double down on the content that you're delivering for just that audience who would want to listen to that sort of advice. Um, so the first step generally is to think about like, okay, who is the audience of one that you want to post to. Um, start from there and just pretend that you're just posting or writing a note to this one person. Um, it might be the best person to think of who you want to write for is actually yourself in the past. So for me, it was always thinking, okay, would younger Danny have appreciated reading this if he was on LinkedIn reading some random stuff and happened to come across your post? Um, that was like a general rule of thumb would be like, yep, he would find this useful post it. So then I would kind of go through the motions of kind of repeating that and learning from your content and the reactions and what's happening. Um, these days we see that social media is such a dynamic beast. You can, you can have really good content one day. Um, and then the next day it flops. And even though the content is more or less the same, the themes are the same. Um, it could be your wording. It could be how engaging the post is. It could be what time of day you're posting. I think all of these factors are the most intimidating when you're starting off on any social media um, with the hopes of growing it to a larger following. 
Um, I know when I started on LinkedIn in the second reboot, when I was doing it um, in 2020, when I wanted to share more knowledge, it was really, I would say not heartbreaking, but it'd be like, ooh, um, I, I spent a lot of time writing this post and it just got like five reactions, like only only 100 people viewed it. Why am I doing this? Um, I think that that's a very common reaction. Um, and literally the only way to get past it is to keep posting regardless. Um, there's no magic bullet that will magically give you a viral post or anything like that. Nor do I think that people should go out there with the aims of posting stuff which is viral for the sake of going viral. I've seen like a lot of tutorials by social media influencers where they give you like a step-by-step guide on writing a viral post. I'm kind of like, it's a, for me, it's like a little cringy to, to think about just going viral with something that gets a lot of eyeballs. Um, and then you're, you're famous or whatever it is that people su- suppose that will happen after that happens. Um, so yeah, I think the the main barriers to overcome is just the one getting over the barrier of people not reacting to anything and you're not getting a lot of traffic. Um, that's going to happen regardless of how good your content is. Um, there are edge cases where your content is just so good and so viral that you instantly build up a ton of fans straight away. Um, that's definitely the exception. Um, it wasn't the case for me, even though I had some moments where some posts went really well and then I started building a following. Um, but that was purely because I was very focused on the audience that I wanted to serve. And that was trying to help people who needed some level of mentorship within their data journey. Um, that was what I was passionate about talking about. Um, and I feel that when people read your content, whether it's like these days, it's like a lot of video is very popular. So you can't really fake being authentic on video. People can see and hear it very clearly. Um, that was one of the reasons why I offered to do live streams instead of just doing pre-recorded videos. Um, I like the thrill of being live and like having the chance to make mistakes and to say the wrong thing. I feel that exposing yourself I know for for me, exposing myself to those sorts of challenges has helped me grow a lot as a person, as a presenter, and as a public speaker, as well as just trying to sharpen my my craft and my trade to be able to talk about it at quite a level of depth, which other people might not be comfortable with, or they might not be as competent at. So it gives me another edge in my career as well over some other people. Um but in general, I think for, for social media, um, it's just like I was saying that the dumb consistency of it all is probably what, what will work out in the end um, with a very clear focus on who you're serving. Um, and I'd also say like a lot of times, I know when I was starting on social media, I didn't really have a strategy, so to speak. And I think that's fine. Um there are some other people who would say, okay, before you start posting on let's say YouTube or something, you want to have a very clear plan of like, what's your, what's your identity? What are you talking about? Um, who your audience is because you, you don't really want to pivot because pivoting changes your identity and your personal brand and yada, yada, yada. I think there's some merit in that, but a lot of people tend to hyper-focus on just getting their strategy right instead of actually executing. Um, and you'll find that like you might have the perfect strategy, but once you start executing it, things go not to plan. You have to pivot. How are you going to deal with those sorts of pivots when you could have, if you just started posting six months ago, 
you would have gone through so many iterations and you might have pivoted to actually where you wanted to have been with a lot more experience under your belt as opposed to now I'm unconfident again because I haven't been doing this for a long time. So I feel social media is the same as almost going to the gym. Like go to the gym, do your reps, grow a little bit. Um, you might have to eat a little bit more so you get some more gains and then you, you just have to like, I feel just, yeah, become become like solely focused on helping other people has helped me immensely. So I hope that that, that as a core concept has come across. Yeah, I think it's definitely mindset driven and you've spoken about this multiple times and it's really what your goals are at the end of the day. And I, I definitely empathize with the notion of people out there posting something and not getting the reaction that they expected. And so, you know, they're expect expecting this massive viral post and then becomes a flop. And so their dopamine levels sink and they feel demotivated, they feel depressed, and that prevents them from pursuing and, and continuing to be consistent. But if you simply just change that mindset to say, look, it's not about the likes, it's not about the reactions. If one person can get some use out of this, just one single person, then I've done my job. And I think that's going to probably take you much further than having this grand vision of becoming this quote unquote influencer. If you can just have this very simple goal of helping people, um, no matter who it is, and they've learned something from you because you decided to post something on that day that's helped them with their job or with their school or whatever it may be, that's uh, an achievement in and of itself. So I think uh, from that perspective, it sounds like there's a lot of value in posting consistently. And I hope that you know people who are listening to this can really get some feedback and insight into doing this for whatever they want to post as well. And it doesn't have to be on LinkedIn, could be on Instagram or Twitter. But nonetheless, if there is a social media around it, then I think that's going to be uh, valuable to, to sort of learn about them. And, and also to that point, you mentioned about not just posting about the stuff that you were initially posting about, let's say it would be data science, but also going off course a little bit and saying, oh, okay, I've done something. And that uh, is something that I've come to myself to sort of deal with. And how do I shape my persona around that? Is there anything that you could say to the way that you've approached that where you decide to post about something completely orthogonal and different from data science, but you find that it's still beneficial and it still gets the following you need because maybe there are people who just want to learn more about who Danny is. And, you know, I know that there's data science, Danny, but I also want to know who else other sides, because we're all multi-dimensional people. There's so many other interests that we have. So it's, it's good to see and, and really good to know that you've done that on your side as well. You know, what's, uh, what was your approach there? I, oh, I honestly think that I'm still not super comfortable posting or sharing about like the other side of Danny, which is not the data with Danny, Danny. Um, so for me, I'm still, it's still a work in progress for me to, to open up a little bit more and to be comfortable sharing more about, I wouldn't say like my personal, personal life, but about my personal, but non-professional life. I'd be, I, I feel that there may be some people who are interested, but there's always this voice in the back of my head that's saying, oh, who would care about like how you're living your life? And also you don't want to make people feel um, like you don't want to write any sort of cringe content where 
people are like, oh, look at this guy sharing about how cool he is or whatever it is. So I feel that it's a fine line on social media when you're trying to share more about your personal life to some extent. Like I like every now and then I'll I'll post on social media, like I'll be carrying my dog or something. We'll go we'll be going for a walk or something like that. Um but I'm still kind of undecided on how much of my personal life I'd show to other people. Like, do they really need to know or do they do they really care that I love cooking um, and I can cook whilst talking about data or something just to keep it kind of like on brand? So I've been thinking about ways to kind of sneak that in. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, in, in general, I feel there was one time, I, I don't know where I heard it from, but people think of personal branding as something that you have to like kind of form yourself and you have to like tell other people like, this is what my personal brand is about. But the, the, the piece of advice that I received was, Oh, personal branding on social media is what other people say about you to other people. So in some, to some extent, you don't really control that. You don't control what other people are saying but you can control the sort of content that you're delivering so that people can perceive you in a certain way. So in that sense, you do have some control, but you also don't have as much control as like, oh, I want Barry to always view me in a good light. I'm not bragging. I'm not doing anything. Um, I'm just trying to help people. It really depends on like how people perceive it in their own context. And you have zero control over that. So I think, as a as a content creator, you can only do your best to try and form up what image you want to share or what sort of content you share. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be all about how it's perceived. And you, in a way, it's it's sort of like going into a, a room at like some function or networking event, and you have to be able to read the room. This room is now like turned into LinkedIn, where you have to read LinkedIn. <laughs> and kind of like share the content that LinkedIn wants to, well, you have to share the content that you want to share, but in a way that LinkedIn wants you to share it in a way. And for me, it's like, I find that that challenge and intrigue very um, interesting to see like, okay, here's the content that I want to post. What do I need to do to make sure that it like has more reach or anything like that? But at some point it gets to the stage where it's like, okay, kind of like, I'm sick of trying to gamify all of it. I just want to share my content to the people who care. I feel that that's where a lot of content creators kind of like move out onto separate platforms where they can get direct access to their followership or anything like that, where you have a, a bit more like clear communication with the people who actually want to listen to you. Um, so I feel that that's part of my next step is to think about, okay, I'm, I'm reasonably big on LinkedIn now. I have a reasonable following. Um, but how can I grow that to develop a different social media platform? I've always wanted to do videos on YouTube, but I just haven't found the time or the the focus to actually get it done. Is this now the chance to actually make some tutorials on YouTube and kind of move my LinkedIn audience to then follow me on YouTube and then kind of learn things for free on that platform? And then it kind of gives me more bands bandwidth to share more about my personal life on video um, as opposed to just sharing photos and talking about what I did on the weekend or something that people don't really connect with. So for me, it's almost like a, I'd love to share more about what I'm doing, but I 
I haven't found the right way to share it in a way where I'm comfortable with. And I think that's slightly, it's, it's aligned to the strategy piece that I talked about where mm-hmm. some people kind of like fixate on having the right strategy. So I'm definitely not immune to that as well. Um, but I feel that doing something which you're comfortable with is going to be quite important because you want to have that longevity to make sure that you keep doing it because there's a point where things are so uncomfortable that you're just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to find that sweet spot between, okay, I'm comfortable doing this. Um, I'm uncomfortable doing that thing, but I can find some mid ground in between where I can consistently do this to move me towards where I need to be. Um, that's what I'm trying to go after right now. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And there's this idea of, you know, you have to enjoy it at the end of the day as well. And if you're just doing this day in and day out and, being worried about what other people think and not really enjoying and, and curating the content to what you think uh, people are going to like, but you yourself don't enjoy the content itself, then that becomes very unappealing to you. And in the long term, it's going to not pay itself and you're going to see really the, the repercussions of that. So I think on, adding on top of that, being able to post stuff that you would also read, you, you mentioned your younger self and having some joy out of that and really getting excited about, oh, I, I would love to write something about this. That's going to create that consistency flywheel and, and keep you pushing no matter what those hurdles are um, at the end of the day. So I think going, uh, sort of wrapping up here, one thing that I've wanted to really gauge before we get into sort of the tail end is working with, going back to working with organizations and there's this notion and now there's a lot of people out there who are starting to get interested in sort of the data science field, people who haven't otherwise thought about data science. How should one organization approach this type of really broad field? Who should they interact with? Should they hire people? Should they hire contractors? You know, what's sort of, uh, when you, when you talk about being data driven, you know, can you explain a little bit about what that means and why it's important to be data-driven and how can organizations be themselves data-driven and, and what sort of steps can they take to uh, to approach that? Hmm. Data-driven seems to be like one of those words where everyone needs to say that their company is data-driven. Otherwise, they're, they're not like part of the, the cool group or they're not like, they're not future thinking and different things like that. But to to say that you're data-driven and to actually have your business processes and operations being data driven i feel that they're like they're two ends of the spectrum essentially you want to make sure that you're you're saying that you're you're data driven but making all the right investments to actually make that happen and to execute on that vision um, the most important thing is going to be your data quality um, of course you can you can if you're starting off and you don't have great data and you just have everything in Excel spreadsheets and that's how you're running your small operations, that's fine as well. Um, with some focus on making sure that the data input is nice and clean and you have some sort of traceability in there, I think that that is okay if you're just starting off in the data space and as an organization. However, once you get to like small, medium, larger sizes where you're you're expected to have a good quality data warehouse and there's different sources of data that you're getting from different suppliers. You want some level of certainty of what the data is. 
um, maybe a catalog of the different types of data. But perhaps you've been working in, in this organization where they've just been hoarding data and the data is in the data warehouse. It might be clean to some extent. No one's really gone in to do further cleaning or to extract further value out of it. Um, but now like senior management is saying, okay, we need everything to be data-driven. Um, there's going to be a disconnect where you need someone with the right skills or the right focus and experience to massage and clean up that da- dirty data to actually provide value out of it. And I feel that there's a lot of people who should have that skill set in a, like, albeit, let's call it a messy environment, converting that into a cleaner environment and then driving initiatives off the back of their work. Um, but in my experience, it's been very difficult to find those practitioners who've had the experience working to clean up something, but then also having the foresight and the vision to clean up messy data in a way that can make it maintainable in the long run. Because at the end of the day, when we're working on projects, the best consultants are the ones who deliver the strategy and can actually execute on what they're telling people that they should be doing in a way which is very robust and future-proof. So I feel that, in my experience anyway, there are definitely people with those skills out there looking to help um, any size of organization. The most important thing is to get them in probably at the right time. There are a lot of things where you can have some shoddy work done at the beginning for the foundations. And then by the time that you come in and you need to make things hum to either scale up or to do anything, um, which requires a lot of complexity, if your foundations are not in the right place and you don't have the right data quality and all the checks and everything are not in place, it's, it's going to make doing any sort of advanced analytics or applied machine learning, I would say almost impossible, um, as opposed to just being like, oh, it's going to be a challenge. Sometimes I think it's not going to be a challenge. It's going to be like an insurmountable mountain where you won't be able to do anything. So there's some, there's a lot of value in having the leadership foresight to think, okay, um, we have some money to spend here on certain resources or certain talent that we could bring in um, to fix something now. But do we use that money to invest in something more long-term and we try and do it properly the first time. So like a stitch in, stitch in time saves nine sort of thing. Um, or do we just do these little fixes here and there and try and patch it up altogether because um, data is not a for, foremost focus on the overall organizational strategy. So they're kind of like the two separate ends of the spectrum. It's either you go big and you go early and you get everything done with really good platforming, um, which generally incurs a higher cost at least a higher upfront cost of of investment? Or do you have this kind of constant burn of lower rates of investment, but your quality output is questionable because you don't really have one single steel thread across the entire stream to actually deliver something that can actually impact your deliverables in the future? So I think for practitioners who are out there and they're kind of thinking about, okay, do I do I go down and hire expensive contractors to help me build the platforming? Um, is this, is this the right recommendation? I would say, I wouldn't say yes or no, but you have to find the right people who you are going to partner with to deliver those sorts of very strategic 
initiatives for your organization. And you want to do this for the long term. You don't want people to kind of come in and set something up and then they're gone in a few weeks. Um, you want that sort of partnership to make sure that they're building it in a way that they understand where your company is trying to get to. And you want them to know that it's a, it's a longer term relationship. So they have some sort of stake in it to do everything right by you and right by them to build everything in the best quality. Cause I think that data quality and the management of all the tooling and the platforms, that's going to be the, the next barrier um, to entry for anyone who's going to try and come into the industry that you're currently operating in. Well said. I think there's a lot to be said there and uh, digested at the same time. So I think that is really food for thought for a lot of people trying to understand, especially from an organizational level and senior management level about what the amount of the time, the money and the effort it's going to take because this isn't a one-shot thing. This is going to take time. It needs planning and execution, just like anything else that is uh, that is, has a long-term vision. So I definitely appreciate uh, the feedback there. Just pausing here quickly um, off camera, um, I'm going to skip the rapid fire questions because I think that's going to take more time. We're just going to get straight into the final advice for young people and then we can wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Sounds good. So maybe we can wrap it up now just by telling a little bit about some of advice that you can give to um, certain people out there who are super interested in science, in data science. They could have a base, an AI background. Maybe they have a very basic understanding of what data science is. They've played around with Python and they're keen to get more involved, right? So what could be some tips, some advice that you can share with them to get them more involved in the space and get them working on exciting projects? Is it perhaps building a brand for themselves? Could it be um, you know, learning certain courses or certain uh, languages? Um, what can you speak to that? My recommendation would be to firstly think of a framework where you can share your your learning to the wider world. So whether this is on LinkedIn or Medium or Substack or whatever it is, think about how you'll do that first as a as a kind of like a a folder of how you're going to share this with the world. Because the worst thing is if you're if you're gonna put in all this sweat equity to build something or to to learn something, of course there's a lot of value in learning those skills for yourself. Um, but there's if there's a way where you can show other people what you're learning at the same time. So whether and that can improve your brand quality or the the contracts that you get in the future. Um, then I say like, why not go ahead and do that at the risk of making yourself look silly because you're learning something for the very first time. So as long as you can get over that fear and kind of set something up or put it put it on the on the path, um, I think that's really important. Then the next step would be to think about what sort of tools you want to learn. There's there's a whole range of tools within the whole data professional landscape. So you can think about whether you want to learn some data engineering and data processing skills, uh, whether you want to look at data visualization, machine learning, whether you want to build an end-to-end -end application that kind of covers all of these streams and you want to deploy it on the cloud so you can serve it as a website so people can kind of click on and play with your app um, as part of your portfolio. That could be another thing. Um, for me, I like the challenge of doing everything end-to-end. -end. So if I was starting off, I would 
challenge myself to think, well, to, to find projects which have this end-to-end view and just to build a simple one first. But the, the fact that you're linking all these technologies together and making uh, an overall product work and you're sharing your learnings about how you're doing all of that, I feel that that's going to be really valuable to anyone who wants to hire you because they can see that you can do you can do the work um, and you're reasonably okay at sharing that as well in written format. Um, those would be my main tips is probably like think about how you're going to showcase your learning and how you can document it. Um, and then just honestly, just pick any area which you're most interested in and start there. So don't worry about people like me or whatever you see on social media telling you that you have to learn SQL or learn Python or whatever, like read an AI book or whatever. Um, honestly, just pick whatever you feel that you are most passionate in and just start there. And I think if you if everything starts from passion, then you have much more chance of having the longevity to learn what you need to learn for this particular area. So, of and I think there's so something many- to be said about discovery as well. And and you'll find exactly because everyone's different as well, and everyone will figure out exactly what their trade, where their niches lie within the realm of data science. And it's not just being prescribed by this influencer or doing this. And they may themselves provide starting points, but it's not the necessarily endpoint you want to get to. And you'll find your own little pocket within the field that you love, and then you the, you yourself can potentially become an influencer in itself one day as well. So I think that's really great advice as well. So thank you so much, Danny. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, before we leave, what's the best way for people to contact you or reach out to you? Yep, I think the best way would be to find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you search like LinkedIn data with Danny, I should pop up somewhere. Um, otherwise, Danny Ma, data with Danny, anything like that. Um, all of my links and everything are all on my profile as well. So if you want to learn some SQL with me or you want to learn other data things with me or you want to join any of my um, technical training that I run for other platforms, you can find and self-service all the links on there. Um, but I'd be very grateful if you give me a follow and like feel free to comment on my post and let me know um, how I'm going or if anything relates with or resonates with you. Um, I'd be very grateful for any interaction on, like that. Yep, I will put all of those links into the show notes below so everyone who is listening or watching uh, the podcast can easily uh, head to your uh, profile and and sort of start connecting with you. Uh, All in all, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know we're running a little bit late, uh, but uh, hopefully a lot of people will get uh, some amazing value out of this conversation. And I'm I'm sure you've uh, inspired a lot of people as well. So thanks, Danny, and uh, appreciate it. Many thanks, Barry.